The Energy Gang is brought to you by Mission Solar Energy, a solar module manufacturer based in San Antonio, Texas. Mission Solar operates a 260-megawatt facility right here in America. Through state-of-the-art engineering and outstanding quality, Mission Solar's modules, every single one of which is made in their Texas facility, offer world-class performance and guaranteed long-term reliability. Visit Mission Solar at the upcoming Solar Power International Conference at booth 3975. And you can find out more about Mission Solar's high-powered modules at missionsolar.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. White House Chief Strategist Steve Bannon gave an interview this week, a really remarkable interview, in which he said that the U.S. is locked in an economic war with China. Bannon wants to use arcane sections of the 1974 Trade Act to penalize China for steel and aluminum dumping. And guess what? That means he's probably paying attention to Section 201 of that Trade Act, which is the foundation of Suniva and SolarWorld's case for slapping severe penalties on imported solar cells and modules from Asia and the rest of the world. Those companies, plus dozens of other heavy hitters in solar, were in Washington this week to argue their case in front of the International Trade Commission. We're going to have the latest on the politics and how the threat of tariffs is already impacting communities across the country. We'll also look to the next steps. Then, a fascinating new climate study on second-order climate beliefs. It's not just about what you believe, it's about what you believe others believe. We'll dig in. Finally, we'll revisit the rise of non-wires alternatives. More utilities are opting for distributed resources in place of traditional wires upgrades on the grid. We'll discuss a new project in Arizona and then look across the landscape of other projects. Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah are with me. Catherine is uh, still in the Adirondack Mountains this week. I am indeed. It is beautiful up here. Um, And it's been nice to get away from D.C., but it's also been really difficult to kind of be out of the really feel quite remote from where I'm from, which is just uh, 65 miles south of Charlottesville and watching all that happen has been really, really tough being up here. Yeah, it's been a stunning week, still trying to wrap my head around all of it. And, you know, we're not going to let you get away from DC. We've stolen you away from your family and from nature to talk trade policy and politics. Jigger is back in the DC area. He was in Kentucky for vacation. Um, how was that? It was great. I was pleasantly surprised to see that they were using solar hot water panels for the all the hot water that we used up there. Ah, the forgotten technology. You know, if you walk around my neighborhood, actually, you can see a bunch of solar thermal. PV's going up like crazy around my neighborhood here in Somerville, Mass., but there's still a lot of solar thermal. Probably, it looks like it's like three decades old. <laughs> <laughs> probably four decades. I think they all got installed under Carter. Well, let's talk about PV, uh, the politics of PV and the politics of trade, for over 10 hours on Tuesday, dozens of witnesses got up in front of a panel of commissioners and argued for and against Seneva and SolarWorld's Section 201 trade petition, which blames their financial woes on solar equipment imports and asks the ITC to slap minimum prices or tariffs on that imported equipment, basically doubling the price of solar modules. Uh, Interestingly, the opponents of trade penalties there at the hearing dramatically outnumbered the supporters. So we're in the thick of it now. This was the first official hearing. In late September, commissioners will decide whether or not domestic solar producers have faced harm due to imports. And if they do, it's going to set off a whole series of hearings and decisions that will eventually make their way to the president's desk. So let's take stock. Jigger, what were you watching going into this hearing? 
Honestly, very little. Go figure. I mean, it's just one of those stupid things where, I mean, I was sort of running the trade case process as the sort of face of it the first time around with SolarWorld. And the problem is that the entire system is rigged. And so when you look at the rules, it's literally almost impossible to win this case in the legal proceedings. It's always a slam dunk case pretty much for the for the manufacturers who claim harm. Explain. Well, the bar for them is that they they have to believe that there's harm for their business, right? Like, like whereas the European case is around harm to the entire industry, so you can actually take into consideration the fact that like downstream jobs might be affected, et cetera. But for the US, that is not a consideration. Like the fact that the rest of the country is gonna suffer from this particular manufacturer's boondoggle tariffs, like doesn't actually apply, right? So the judges don't have to take that into consideration. And so so it's a really one-sided case. And, and, and so a lot of this is just playing for the cameras, which frankly, I think is hugely important. So I'm not suggesting that the people who went there, Dan Sugar and a lot of other folks who went down there, I mean, I'm not saying that they wasted their time. I think these guys are really, really being good sports for spending all that time flying across the country, testifying, going back. It's really important work, and I'm glad that they do it. But, I mean, the system is really rigged in these cases. Yeah, I would say the bar is very high for three out of four commissioners to vote against injury during this first phase. So August 22nd, the post-hearing briefs with any questions that need to be responded or due, and I guess companies are also sending in letters of support. Then the 22nd, they'll determine if there's injury. And even if they tie, it goes to injury. So a tie decision goes to the petitioner. Then they'll do the injury phase, which or the remedy phase, which starts October 3rd with a hearing on the remedies. And then November 12th, there's a final decision um, that is sent to the, the, the final recommendation is then sent to the White House for the final decision on remedy. And I think, you know, there are a couple different things that we have to think about. One is that, you know, the, the ITC judges can't be lobbied overtly, but they do read the paper. So, so part of the issue is like, let's get as much, um, press out there, really positive press as possible before the injury phase uh, is over. And then again, during the remedy phase, have people weigh in. And the good news is that the solar industry is, as Stephen set it up, so much against these two companies. There are so many witnesses, political, even Georgia Commissioner Bubba McDonald weighed in on um, Senator David Perdue of Georgia. These are, Georgia is where Seneva is located. They are both against Seneva. So I think politically, um, it looks better for uh, the opposition to Seneva, but the way these just judges have to decide is a really high bar. And, and that's probably why a lot of the opponents of the tariffs came in, not necessarily talking about downstream jobs impacts, but they came in talking about why Solar World and Ceneva's problems are a result of its, you know, bad business practices. Like they just didn't read the market well enough. They didn't make the appropriate decisions to adjust during a period of oversupply. And so you had people like Tom Werner, the CEO of SunPower, and Dan Sugar, the CEO of Next Tracker, who came in and said, "Look, you know, smart companies have adjusted their businesses. We learned to ride out these swings in the market, and and this is the fault of these two companies." And it seemed like most of the arguments there were really about um, why Seneva and Solar World are unique in their inability to ride through these uh, waves in the global solar market. Jigger, did you pick up on that at all? 
Yeah, no, I think that's exactly the right thread of arguments to make, right? I mean, it's the same thread that we used with Solar World, which was that, you know, at the time in 2012, they still had not created a utility sized panel. Like they were using residential and rooftop solar panels for utility scale projects, which was literally the dumbest thing you'd seen in a long time. And and so it's not surprising that they missed out on the entire utility scale boom in the United States. And we made that point, I think, quite persuas- per- persuasively. Um, and we also, you know, hired Brattle Group to do these studies and that kind of thing. I, honestly, I think that what this is going to require, though, is for us to, you know, basically hire the right people to make sure this gets crafted using basically fake news type stuff onto Breitbart um, and maybe on um, Morning Joe, because that's what matters, right? Once the ITC agrees that there was harm done here, then this becomes a choice for the president. And the, the way to do this is say to the president, look, this is a Qatari-owned company in Solar World, you know, mixed with a Chinese-owned company in Suniva, who are actually trying to tell Americans what to do. Told, go tell them to shove it. Yeah, I think that's right, Jigger. I think we need to get to the folks that uh, Trump listens to. And yet still, I would never pretend uh, that I have any ability to predict what he would actually do um, and who he would be listening to at the moment when that decision is made. Um, I do think that uh, we have to make sure that the people who can receive arguments. Those ITC judges do receive them in a way that will allow them to make a decision that is well thought through because I do think that they are, you know, they're serious people. They are not capricious. Um, They are very conservative with a small C and that they do make decisions generally in favor of U.S. companies. So, the 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 discussion has to has to make sure that it looks that that it really is this is about U.S. companies um, whether or not these two companies um, really have the you know have win the day or whether it's really about this whole U.S. sector one of the things that they that the companies were able to do in advance of the hearing was fill out a questionnaire. And that questionnaire asked, uh, you know, how do you make decisions about your purchases? How do you, what are the, what are those factors? And developers, you know, they want reliable quality products in a timely fashion and in the quantity that they need. And these companies were not able to do it. So those decisions are not made based on where the manufacturing occurs. It's, it's based on a lot of other factors. And I think um, that's going to be important. I don't know if that's going to if that's going to really help on this decision, because the ITC really does uh, generally rule in favor of U.S. manufacturing. Yeah, I mean, just to be clear, like, I mean, the chances that the broader solar industry wins this case is like 0.0001%. Like, this is a rigged deck, and there's literally nothing you can do about it. So this really all comes down to Trump. And Wilbur Ross, like, you know, sort of loves tariffs, right? He's the reason why we had the 2002 tariffs that went so horribly wrong against the steel industry folks um, when he was running all of the steel companies in the United States um, under Bush, right? And so so he should have learned his lesson there, but he wants to double down. I think that in general, his comments seem like sort of non-applicable to solar. I think he's really more talking about steel. So I'm a little bit hopeful that he sort of stays out of the fray. But yeah, this really comes down to Trump. And I think when you look at what he's done or lack thereof in the transgender issue of the military, this may be something he just huffs and puffs about, but doesn't actually follow through on. 
This is so interesting, though. You actually think the legal case doesn't even really matter right now. It's all about winning the war in the press, which is where most people who are trying to talk to Trump go. They they go to the New York Times and they go to Morning Joe or to, to Fox and Friends. Yeah, no, I mean, to be clear, I agree with Catherine. I think you have to put up a fight, right? So you have to do the right thing. You have to get all these people to fly in. You have to do all this stuff, which is so time consuming. And I just thank all the people that made the trip and made the effort. That being said, it's not going to be t- determinative. I think what's going to be determinative is going to be Fox and Friends, you know, Morning Joe, and like, you know, Breitbart. Have we learned um, anything at this point about what the administration would do? Like, does has anything that they've said lead us to believe that they would take an aside on this issue? I mentioned Bannon's comments, for example. Um, assuming, you know, the ITC decides the domestic industry has faced injury, will the Trump administration act? And given that it really hasn't been able to like act on any of its executive orders, would it even have the capacity to act? That's kind of the, the major wild card. Well, I think a, a couple of things here. One is, you know, whether they or not they find injury, and if they do, what is the remedy that they recommend, the ITC recommends? So there's an issue of what is that remedy? Because we could we could see a remedy that is less onerous than other types of remedies, uh, you know, depending on the amount of the tariff that they would want to levy. The other thing is on the political side, you know, Senator, I mentioned this before, Senator David Perdue from Georgia is considered a Trump ally and he is against Suniva in this case. And so you could see him going to the president and talking to him. Um, it's been hard to see um, the senators actually having an impact in the end on what the president does. But another factor is this kind of uh, conservative group that is working on this case as well that includes Heritage. And Heritage, a lot of those folks are in the administration now. And Heritage has come out and said, we need to reject the government favoritism that plagues Washington, which is you know funny considering there are other industries to whom the government is favorable under the Trump administration. But no matter matter, good to have them on our side and good to know that a lot of those folks are already embedded in the administration. So that might also help the case. It's Heritage. It's the R Street Institute. It's uh, who else? Alec. Like pretty much every major influential conservative organization is against this, either because they... Right, which doesn't matter. Why? You really don't think it'll Trump have Because Trump doesn't listen impacts? to any of them. You Do you really think, like, look, I mean, Stephen Moore former head of the Club of Growth, was on the Wall Street Journal board, right? He Or editorial board. He literally was like Trump's biggest supporter. He goes to Heritage and then Trump says, Stephen Moore's an idiot. I'm never going to listen to him again, right? I mean, like, that's Trump. Trump expects loyalty from his people, but he doesn't show any loyalty to anyone else. The Heritage Foundation had a really important, influential role in the budget-making process for the Department of Energy. I'm just saying this is a lot like figuring out how to win class president than it is about actually doing real policy making, right? This is all about like, what innuendos do you spread? What rumors do you spread right before the election? Like, you know, who, who like soda machine promised the soda machine. I mean, it's like the dumbest thing ever. Like, it's just like, I, I, I refuse to analyze this to death when it's really about figuring out how to place the right Breitbart story and the right Fox and friends story. Yeah, sort of look there, there are a couple of key indicators. Like, Conservative organizations have helped Trump craft his Department of Energy budget. So they've had 
somewhat of an impact on the way the White House is thinking about energy, um, whether it's you know lower level staffers in the DOE or folks a little bit higher up at, in the White House. Secondly, you have a someone like Bannon who gave this wild interview this week and talked a lot about aggressive trade practices against China, using the 1974 Trade Act, Section 301, to go back and revisit um, cases against steel and aluminum dumping from China. So you have a couple areas of the administration that are interesting to watch. I agree that we shouldn't overanalyze this because like, we have no idea what's going to happen. Even if uh, injury is deemed like if they pass that onto the White House, we have no idea if they'll even execute on it because they don't even necessarily have the capacity. Like, you know, the, the the transgender ban in the military hasn't been implemented because the military didn't know it was coming and Trump just decided to tweet it out. So like the actual the actual policy making piece, even if the Trump administration wants to rally behind this, is completely uncertain. I know. I just look, I mean, I don't I like pontificating on these issues with the best of them, as you guys know, on the energy gang. But this is just like, this is just crazy stuff. Like, this is really... hold on. Like, you can't dismiss it out of hand like that. Sure, the politics of the Trump administration are crazy, but this is like one of the biggest issues of our time. You know, the, the solar industry could potentially face massive price increases. You've been against these possible remedies. So you know the consequences. Um, There's a reason why the vast majority of folks in the solar industry, both upstream and downstream, are against this stuff, because it will have an impact on installations and on jobs. So the politics are nuts. We can't read too much into them, but the consequences are very clear. Yeah, look, I agree with you. The consequences are very clear, and I'm already seeing it. We are getting module manufacturers that are willy-nilly canceling supply contracts that they don't have the right to cancel, raising prices. I mean, it's it's bedlam right now in the solar industry in the United States. And it sucks that we have to go through this. And I don't actually understand how we're supposed to inoculate ourselves from this happening again. I mean, you know, it's like it, it, it the whole thing like is just so awful. And I don't, I don't know what to do, but I, but I'm saying that like figuring out logical thought processes around a, an, an interview with Steve Bannon or an interview with Wilbur Ross or an interview with the stuff He's just a fool's errand in this administration. I mean, like he just he just does whatever he wants and he doesn't really care what his advisors think. Yeah, it's totally fair. So let's just ask this one last question about the real business impact. We are seeing a number of module producers who are sold out of modules. Like they're they're selling modules like crazy. Prices have jumped from the mid 30 cents a watt to around 50 cents a watt. Developers are trying to lock in prices and supply agreements before these tariffs potentially go into effect. What are you hearing about the um, supply-demand equation as a result? Yeah, for sure. Module prices were sort of at sort of like the 31, 32, 33 cents a watt. I mean, I think that, you know, now they're routinely in the high 40s. Um, You know, so like I think that we're in a... um, you know, that's a certainly a huge percentage increase. Um, and, you know, I, I think it makes a lot of projects that were sort of on the bubble uh, no longer pencil, like particularly a lot of the projects in Georgia, frankly, a lot of those projects were bid at extremely low PPA prices. And, you know, anything above a dollar five or a dollar eight a watt installation costs probably isn't going to work. 
We're going to pause here to quickly talk about Mission Solar Energy, our sponsor. Thanks, Mission, for supporting the show. America's booming solar industry now employs over 260,000 people. Really remarkable. And Mission Solar is one of those proud employers. The company's 260-megawatt solar manufacturing facility supports local U.S. production, engineering, and office jobs in San Antonio, Texas, directly contributing to America's burgeoning clean energy economy. Mission Solar's Texas-based location makes it easier to fulfill the needs of domestic developers, keeping your projects moving and on schedule. And Mission Solar's in-house research and development laboratory keeps the company innovating and producing the highest quality modules possible. Come meet the Mission Solar team at Solar Power International in Las Vegas from September 10th through the 13th. They're going to be at booth 3975. You can talk to the staff, check out their products. And for those who are not at the event, check out Mission Solar's modules at missionsolar.com. What if we're wrong about climate change? No, not about the science, but about what others believe. What if our beliefs about what others believe are a force for action or interaction on the problem? That's what a new study from Harvard University researchers set out to understand. So much of the literature on public opinion around climate is focused on first-order beliefs or understandings. In other words, what individuals think on their own. But this study sought to understand how individuals are shaped by what other people think, or in the case of international climate policy, how countries or large populations in a country perceive the level of commitment to climate action in other countries. According to Mato Mildenberger and Dustin Tingley, the two co-authors, it's an understudied area. And when they use different survey methods to figure out whether perception of others impacts personal belief, they found it indeed does. Catherine, what did you take from this study? Like, what does it tell us about the significance of these second-order beliefs? Yeah, it's so interesting to me. And by the way, the paper is, uh, it is very dense. <laughs> so it took me a couple of times going through it to actually try to discern all, all the details, because this is a, a topic, a political science um, aspect that I'm not as versed in. So it's really, um, this really is about what do people think other people believe, and how does that um, then weigh on what they end up doing? So they looked at three different groups. One was just general public, and they did this for U.S. and Chinese uh, sort of mass publics. Then they looked, they asked international relations professionals um, that would, you know, are those that are involved in international negotiations, thinking that they would have some sense from an international perspective. And then they also asked congressional staffers, which I thought was really interesting because they thought, you know, congressional staffers, um, especially chiefs of staff, have their fingers on the pulse of how, uh, uh, of polls, how people think about things. So what they found when they asked climate questions was that individuals overestimate the agreement of what they believe in the population. They always overestimate the people agree with them. They assume that people who disagree with them have biases. They believe that there's more polarization with agreement and disagreement than there actually is. And they also assume that there's a balance in the size of the sides of the conflict. And what I thought was fascinating about the findings here is that all of those groups, whether it was mass market, international relations professionals, or congressional staffers, so political types, they all had the same findings. They all had the same beliefs, um, which was amazing. No matter what the information coming in was, um, they all believed in the same sort of biases um, based, and their perceptions were the same. The good news is that, and we can talk a little bit more about this, 
is that you can change second order opinions by providing new information. I was really struck by that as well. Um, these these are not just individualistic findings. You know, us uh, peons, we're a fickle bunch, but it applies to political elites and intellectual elites as they're identified in the paper. Um, so distilling this even further down to its essence, basically, like, if you if you think that more people support climate action, you're willing to support climate action yourself. If you feel that more people don't support climate action or even believe in climate change, you're likely to feel the same way. Yes, exactly. So the incentive to act collectively is is depressed or lowered if an individual underestimates the willingness of others. So it's like you're taking this individual cost to something that had of an action to what a, a benefits that is dependent upon a group. So when I reached out to the Climate Reality Project, they said, "Yes, this is this is why staying in Paris was so important because being in Paris, whether or not different countries do different things to comply, there's this sort of universal acceptance um, about the beliefs of everyone else. Um, there's a fear of isolation that individuals have that's just part of you know human behavior. Um, and so us coming out of Paris, that was sort of the danger, is that it, it starts ero eroding this feeling of universal acceptance and this what they call a community of fate, that everybody is in this together and then we're all willing to collectively act. I mean, it's just, I, I love this paper. I think it's exactly right. And I think it, you know, I had a coffee with Amy Harder at Axios yesterday. And, you know, Amy and I have had some fights on Twitter because she sort of like covers this, you know, anti-climate or climate denial sort of point of view from her days in the Wall Street Journal. And I was like, it just doesn't exist. Like, when you look at some of the papers like this, etc., the vast majority of people actually believe that climate's real and and either way believe that climate ch change solutions are worth deploying at scale but the media is also representing it that way to the so the media has a huge um place to play in this as well. So yeah, there are a lot of opinion polls, like only 22% of the public think the government is spending too much on protecting the environment. I mean, there's overwhelming support for environmental protection, belief in climate change. And yet, people think that it is much more polarized, that other people are more polarized than they actually are. I mean, that's true in a lot of aspects right now. But it's interesting that people are judging others as either the same or different um, based on what their beliefs are and what they think, whether or not they, their beliefs and what other people think are true. Exactly. It, it's yet another example of why the false balance around climate on television shows and in the rest of the press is really damaging. Because when the press puts the, puts the mirror to our face and tells us that more people uh, don't believe in climate change than actually do you know, it causes uh, damaging consequences in terms of how people view climate action itself. And it turns out that, you know, more people think we should do something about climate change than than not. So a lot of this false balance is, is just exactly that false. We've known that for a long time, but this is another way of looking at the problem. Yeah, another good resource is the Climate Advocacy Lab. Um, and they try to engage um, through public and evident, um, the public on climate issues on with an evidence-based approach to advocacy um, and how to talk about climate. So I think this is a, a piece that needs a lot more work. This is sort of the first piece of research, uh, political science research done in climate beliefs. So I think a lot more needs to be done. But I think the more we know about 
how people think others believe about it, the more we'll be able to change those secondary beliefs. In a sense, it's like, it's kind of like figuring out ways to harness that reinforcement cycle that many consider damaging, this so-called feedback loop where we surround ourselves with like-minded opinions. So it's it's like both harnessing it and flipping it on its head. If you apply that same feedback loop, loop to climate, where actually most individuals do understand that climate is changing and probably agree that we need to do something about it, then you might be able to catalyze more momentum for action. So depending on how the, the feedback loop is harnessed, it could actually be a, a positive thing. The, my final takeaway from this was that it reminded me a bit of what guides the strategy of a company like Opower. I ran over here to the mic right after reading this study, so I wasn't able to look up the research that, that Opower is based off of. But if I recall correctly, the researchers sent messages to homeowners and found that um, it wasn't about like shaming them. It wasn't about telling them, uh, giving them numbers. It was about comparing them to other homeowners to get them to act. And so it backs up exactly what we know about how people respond to signals about, say, energy use and energy efficiency. It's why Opower is successful. They push messages about how others are performing. And, and by using a competitive messaging, you both motivate the customer and kind of normalize energy efficiency as something that everyone else is doing. All right, let's talk about NWA. You are now about to witness the strength of street knowledge. No, not that NWA. We're not that cool. We're referring to non-wires alternatives, a concept that's taking over the streets of the utility regulation world here in the U.S. This month, Arizona Public Service partnered with AES Energy Storage to deliver a 1-megawatt, 4-megawatt-hour battery to the small, isolated town of Pumpkin Center, a move that will help it avoid costly transmission and distribution upgrades. AES is going to deliver the battery at half the cost of an upgrade. That's the number that was released. It's yet another example of a coming boom for non-wireless alternatives, the most famous being the BQDM project in New York using efficiency, demand response, and storage to help Con Edison avoid a billion-dollar distribution system upgrade. In June, our GridEdge analyst Daniel Munoz-Alvarez released a great study on non-wireless alternatives looking at all the activity around the U.S. It's really substantial. There are nearly two gigawatts of projects in, pro in progress or under solicitation. Catherine, first to Arizona. Batteries just seem to be the perfect fit for Pumpkin Center. Why? Yeah, because not only do you have a reduced cost because you're able to defer, reduce, or alleviate the, the project, um, the wires project, but that you also add value to the system. So instead of just wires, you're going to have a flexible resource that provides grid services and is able to integrate renewables. Um, it's very local and incremental, so it's not as expensive. And on the local level, um, you can move the batteries around. If the load forecasts shift, as they often do, or they're not right, you can move it around and try it elsewhere. So I think that the value that it brings so far offsets the cost, and the co reduced cost alone is um, is of benefit. You know, batteries are still kind of a use case around the edges for non-wires alternatives. Jigger, where are batteries fitting into these increasing procurements? Well, what you find is is that many of these uh, upgrades are really around just a few hours, right? I mean, in Long Island, they've got a place where they've got this sort of 80 megawatt peak. And, you know, they did an RFP and they found that a battery storage solution along with 
micro CHP um, could really solve the problem much cheaper than transmission. Um, but in that situation, the utility companies wrangled the RFP and ended up getting a $500 million transmission line added, um, which will cost ratepayers over $2 billion over 40 years with interest, right? And so that those are the situations where batteries play a big role. And the other piece of that is that once you have the battery in place, you can use it for all of the stacked value um, options that you know MIT and Green Tech Media and others have highlighted. Because once the batteries are in place, you can use them for other purposes. Yeah, and so this even started back in 2010. We've talked about this project before, this four megawatt sodium sulfur um, battery in Presidio, Texas, that was put in place um, in, to to partly alleviate this aging transmission line. It was called the big old battery, Bob, they called it. It started then, and then remember in 2011, FERC Order 1000 said that um, system operators needed to consider non-transmission alternatives to building transmission. Um, at that time, you know, lots changed since then. And at that time, a lot of these um, alternatives weren't as cost effective. But now you see all these non-wireless alternatives as really public utility commission mandates, because they're looking at what are the least cost options? How can we um, exert prudency? And how do we alleviate the consumer burden? So you think about our conversation last week about South Carolina and the nuclear power plants. When you put in a battery or demand response efficiency, even less expensive, um, energy management systems, this reduces not just the cost of the project, but the cost to all consumers for having to take on those pass-along costs of T&D projects. The coolest thing about this project, uh, by the way, you can read the story in our show notes. Julian Spector, our uh, staff writer, had a really nice write-up of what the project entails. The coolest thing that I thought about this project was that AES Energy Storage can just like move the batteries if they're not needed anymore. Like, what, what other power plant can you just move around the country for other needs? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, just some, just some sort of context and maybe slightly negative points is I think... Um, you know, 95% of all of the uh, non-wires alternatives projects are being driven by four states. Um, and so that is a problem. We don't actually see uniform um, applicability of these sort of policy-driven, you know, regulatory-driven um, mandates. I, I think that the other piece of this is that even though um, these things save a lot of money, a lot of the savings in some cases, up to 20, 25% of the savings really has to be given to the utility companies as a bribe to do it. Because the utility companies so hate to do these things because they'd rather just build wires and get paid boatloads of cash for the next 40 years that they can't actually pass 95% of the savings through to the ratepayers. They have to give a lot of it to the utilities to bribe them to do it. Well, and as you mentioned, uh, you know, California, New York, Hawaii, and Texas, those four states, and there are a couple of others coming along too, that are um, really looking at non-wires alternatives because they have load pocket issues. But what we then have to figure out is how to crack the nut in the middle part of the country where they're long on capacity. And, you know, how do we then use demand response, efficiency, advanced energy management to make sure that we invest in ways that are really inexpensive to invest, but allow you to take full advantage of the capacity that they have. I understand that infrastructure development and rate cases, they're much different than words in an interview. But I will say that every single person I talked to at EEI's recent conference in June 
they talked about non-wires alternatives. Whether or not they're actually implementing a project, they're thinking about where distributed resources can fill in on tr traditional infrastructure development. And the, the question is how to pay for it, whether they just rate base it or whether there's some kind of shared savings agreement or like, uh, you know, a clawback exemption that allows utilities to reap savings from deploying the non-wires alternative compared to the infrastructure alternative. Like they still need to figure out how to pay for it. But there's a lot of be thought being put into this. And it's not just concentrated in utilities in a handful of states. Like a bunch of utilities are thinking about it at least. And that's a start. Well, if it was concentrated in utilities, then we'd be lost. I mean, hopefully it's concentrated in regulators and others, as Catherine was talking about. But I look, I, I think that the the thing that is actually quite a bit fascinating to me and, you know, going to a non sequitur is that, you know, Chris Clack put out his 70 page report on what he believes we need to do to decarbonize the grid. And what was fascinating is that the lowest cost option actually didn't include almost any storage. In fact, like there was no increase in storage required beyond what was already in the ground today through pumped hydro, um, that all of it was solved with high voltage DC lines. So that'll be a battle royale. Yeah. And, and if you look at the procurements, you know, what's being solicited, what's under development for NWA projects, um, they're vast majority behind the meter, but efficiency dominates and demand response and storage and solar which get a lot of attention are a small percentage. A lot of these projects are to be determined, but interesting that storage doesn't play a huge role right now. It's just a couple percent of projects, actually. Right, but Chris is suggesting that even in the end state, it doesn't um, like have a big role in the lowest price scenario. Now, I don't think his lowest cost scenario is going to happen because high voltage DC lines are something that nobody wants to build. But I thought it was fascinating that that's where his work revealed. But I also think, um, Stephen, when we look to, even though a small percentage of the projects are now um, storage, uh, given that we're going to, states are expanding demand response, efficiency, advanced energy management, coupled with storage, I think all of these flexible resources are so much cheaper now and they're so much easier to cite. And as you say, they're mobile. Um, I just think there's no stopping it at this point. Okay, it's tell, time for Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Catherine, what's your story? Yeah, so um, we've been sort of paying attention internally uh, to what Secretary Zinke uh, from Department of Interior has been doing as he reviews parks and monuments. Some of our work has been on trying to protect monuments that were designated under the Antiquities Act of 1906. Um, and on August 24th, Zinke is going to announce which monuments are going to continue their designation and which will be potentially rolled back or eliminated or reverted to state ownership. Now, just to put this in context, no president has ever abolished a national monument designated by a predecessor. Um, Kennedy, John F. Kennedy, did reduce the size in 1963 of Bandelier in New Mexico, um, changed the borders of it, but that's the only time a designation has been changed under the Antiquities Act. So there, there are five in particular, a couple in Utah, Maine, New Mexico, some that were designated by Clinton, some um, under Bush and some by Obama. Um, Zinke says he won't sell, sell the federal lands, but he's really taking a hard look at them. And it'll be interesting to see on August 24th what ends up happening. Jigger, what's your story? So I have two stories. One is that um, the Wall Street Journal did another hatchet job on um, PACE financing yesterday. Um, where I did not see this one. Where, you know, the same reporter, whose name is escaping me now, but basically wrote a piece taking 
good data basically showing that that um, defaults in the PACE program continue to be much lower than the default overall within the state of California and other places. And basically said, well, it tripled in size, and therefore this is bad for PACE when, in fact, the industry quadrupled in size. So, like, it was actually good news. Um, so that's something to watch out for. And then the other piece, which I was fairly shocked by, was so National Grid basically in the UK did this big study and then basically selectively leaked um, their results and said that we'd have to build like 10 new nuclear power plants to meet the electric vehicle mandate that came out of this the country. And further inspection, they really actually had to walk it back because it was the scenario under which all of the EVs would be charging exactly at the same time. And there would be no load management and no change in policy um, to like to affect the load curve. And even then, um, you know, it was still mis- just like really, really bad fake news efforts on National Grid's part. Um, I mean, just to put this in perspective, um, Norway has 200,000 electric vehicles now, which is roughly 10% of their total fleet of cars. And there are no issues with filling these cars with electricity at all. Zero. Oh my God, I can't believe we're using the term fake news on this podcast now. But it's, I mean, it's just so ridiculous, right? I mean, when National Grid, the official utility company of the UK, actually says something, they have to be very careful about what they say. They can't just be like, oh, sorry, we misreported that wildly. Um, because it, it, you know, those first impressions matter. Well, I want to announce some real live news. We're going to be real and live on stage for a couple of events coming up. We're back in New York City by popular demand, September 19th at the Jerome Green Center for the Performing Arts in uh, Soho. It's part of the Clean Energy Connections event there in New York. We just love it there. We love the folks who organize it. The venue is fantastic. It's like our favorite place to do a live podcast because it's like a studio environment at WNYC's performing arts uh place so we have not put tickets on sale yet they should be out in the next few days but again that's september 19th i think at 7 p.m and we'll provide more details um the second one is uh, a couple weeks before that on september 7th jigger and i are going to be at the university of vermont at the catalysts for the climate economy national innovation summit and i'll be hosting the fishbowl panel discussion Paul Hendricks from Patagonia is going to be there. Gary Hirschberg from the CEO of Stonyfield will be there. Danny, Danny Kennedy of CalCEF and the Sungevity founder. And Emily Reichert of Greentown Labs, who was on the podcast recently on, for that uh, Startups and Clean Tech Incubators show. Again, September 7th at the University of Vermont. Two great events and hope to see you there. Just come say hello. We hope uh, some of our listeners in NYC, we know there are a lot of you, will come to that September 19th event. And it does sell out quickly, so when tickets drop, you might want to get them fast. That's it. Thanks for joining us. Send a link to your colleagues and your friends, your family members, whoever is interested in energy and clean tech and environmental issues. Go to uh, iTunes and give us a rating and review. A lot of people have done that recently. We thank you so much. And, uh, you know, listen to us every week. Subscribe if you don't. Come see us at our live shows. You can interact with us any way you like, in in person or uh, on social media. Thanks for your support of the show. Thanks to my co-hosts for taking time out of their summer. Catherine, enjoy the rest of your vacation. What's on the docket now? 
Well, thanks. I want to remind everybody to wear their official solar eclipse glasses on Monday, August 21st, or you will no longer be able to see the podcast. (laughs) Jigger, what are you doing for the eclipse? I'm going to be out in San Francisco, so hope to see you all there. I think we have an 82% eclipse in in San Francisco. It's going to be awesome. All right, folks. Enjoy eclipse watching. Make sure you put your glasses on, and uh, we'll update you on what happened. It'll be interesting to see what happens in a state like California. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey. We are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. Thanks for listening.